This is Archive Atlanta, episode 107, Jewel Simon. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. Before we get started on the last episode of 2020, the longest year of our lifetimes, let me get some announcements out of the way. After today, I will be taking the next few weeks off for the holidays and will return with new episodes on Friday, January 8th, 2021. If you'd like some content to fill the time, I have 19 mini episodes available on my Patreon page, which can all be unlocked for just a dollar a month, and there is a link in the show notes. I've also been working on a new website to coincide with new logos that I had made this fall, and my goal is to release all of this exciting stuff before the year ends, so keep an eye out for that. But also, don't be alarmed of the podcast art changes. This week's episode is all about Jewel Simon, told by my friend Mark Taylor. Over a year ago, Mark and his wife Melinda were inside Broad Street Antiques in Chambly when a certain watercolor caught their eye. It had happy-looking, almost childlike faces, swirls, rhythms, colors, and lines. It had musical notes, keyboards, bits of instruments, and books with poems. After getting it home, they realized that it had some slight damage, so to justify the cost of the restoration, as Mark jokes, they started to search for information about the artist listed on the back, Jill Simon. And there was almost nothing published. Mark dove headfirst into the archives, and as her life unfolded, so did the story of this remarkable black woman, artist, mother, and Atlantan. Over the last year, he's been compiling her life story and artwork, even meeting her living family members, and today, I am sharing my interview with him so that you too can learn about Jewel. All right, so let's start with who you are. I'm Mark Taylor. I'm an associate professor at Berry College in Rome, Georgia. I've been there 22 years. Do you feel like she's been lost to history? Is that the right way to describe it? Well, of course, with a lot of things with uh, Black history and, and Black culture against mainstream culture, uh, there was one Black artist, uh, maybe it was Romary Bearden, who said that uh, there's only room for one Black artist at a time. And so, yeah, some of the big names, Romary Bearden, Charles White, uh, Henry Tanner, I, I'd heard about, but Jules Simon completely lost. And there was not a whole lot of published information. I had to go back and do a lot of primary research, digging up primary sources. Uh, in the end, I've, I've amassed over 2,500 uh, documents, and uh, they reveal such a fascinating and rich life. Uh, let's start with where she was born, because she wasn't born in Atlanta, right? Right. She was born in 1911 in Houston, Texas, so her grandparents were born into slavery, and they came to Houston probably for greater opportunity. You know, after the collapse of Reconstruction, it was pretty hard for black farmers. And uh, her father, Chester Arthur Woodard, began working as a porter, which basically is like a messenger or a mail carrier uh, for different companies. Eventually, uh, he got a position at a white law firm, Baker Botts. And he rose to become a mailroom supervisor, which under segregation is about as high as a black man's going to get in a white firm. The interesting thing about that, though, is that the clients, they would send their young sons to work, say, a summer job at Baker Botts. And of course, they'd get sent down to the mailroom where they would be supervised by Chester. 
And uh, two of the men that I've discovered who uh, worked in the mailroom under him were George W. Bush and James Baker, That's former amazing. Secretary of State. <laughs> That's so crazy. So, yes, uh, George Bush worked for Jewel Simon's father. Wow. So, But she grew up there. She spent her She grew up years. there. Uh, she had her education there. So in 1927, she comes to Atlanta University. Uh, she was very gifted academically and uh, is majoring in mathematics. She graduates uh, four years later. She said she could have graduated in three years, but uh, she wanted to take all of the advanced math classes. Now, while she was there, she met a young man named Edward Lloyd Simon, uh, who was also a student at Atlanta University. He was actually an All-American linebacker wow. uh, for the Clark University team. So Jewel graduated in 1931. She actually did her last year at Spelman because that was the year that the schools reorganized. And uh, she graduated summa cum laude. Uh, she had offers to go to graduate school. But her parents said, you need to come back home and help your younger brother get through school. So she returned to Houston, got a job at high school uh, in the mathematics department. Very soon after that, she uh, was promoted to chair of the department. And she did that for the next uh, eight years of her life. The uh, faculty were required to, to do fundraisers for the school. And uh, in 1934, they needed to raise money for band uniforms. Some of her friends who had seen her biology drawings in high school said, you know, you should do art. So she got little pieces of cardboard. She collected whatever she could find, spread them out on the floor, and began painting pictures on them. And she sold them anywhere from a nickel to $3 each. And she was surprised at how popular they were. She sold them out. And so after that, a friend of hers said, well, you know, I'm taking private lessons from this uh, artist. Why don't you get in and, and do that too? So she began private lessons, and so that was her first real experience with art. Now, Edward Lloyd Simon had graduated a few years later, also as a mathematics major. He became a math teacher in Griffin, Georgia, and they were so poor, they couldn't even pay him a salary. They took up a collection for him at church. After a year, he decided he'd had enough of that. He decided to go to uh, New York and become uh, a red cap railroad porter. On the way, a friend said, Atlanta Life Insurance is hiring. Why don't you go check them out and see? And he does, becomes a, a traveling insurance salesman throughout the South. But he's really, really good at it. He finds his calling. Eventually, because again, he's got the math background, he becomes the company auditor for the state of Texas. Oh, I see. He here. renews his uh, relationship with Jewel. They become engaged in 1938. They marry in 1939, traveling around for a couple of years, and he keeps getting promoted till in 1941, he's promoted to the home office. So that's when they moved to Atlanta, uh, started out in a uh, little apartment that they called the Doll House. And a couple of years later, they moved into the house at 67 Ashby 
Beach Street. Okay. And she said in those days she didn't have a whole lot to do except uh, to cook, clean, play bridge, and paint. <laughs> Apparently, she and Edward had some kind of an agreement, whereas rather than being a completely traditional housewife, that, yes, she would do the housewifey things of raising children and all, but she would also have freedom to pursue art. So, um, you know, it's uh, for a fairly conservative family, it was somewhat progressive. So she's walking around Atlanta University, and she discovers that the university is beginning to put on uh, art shows. And this becomes the Atlanta University annual uh, exhibition of Negro paintings, drawings, and sculpture, which ran from 1942 to 1970. So in 1943, she enters a painting and it gets accepted. And uh, this uh, annual exhibition was particularly important for black art at this time. As you know, there weren't a whole lot of opportunities. Yeah. Uh, most art shows were segregated in the South, and, you know, they're just hard to get into anyways. So she uh, begins exhibiting at the show, and there are the best black artists from all over the country. And then in 43, her son uh, was born, Edward Jr., so she doesn't do anything for a few years. But then uh, she meets Hale Woodruff, who was teaching at Atlanta University at the time. So she takes an advanced class with him, 1946. And uh, she um, has this experience of studying under a first-rate black artist. And she says that his method of instruction was that he would pretty much just go from easel to easel and look at your work and make comments on it. And he said he didn't want everybody painting like him, so he wasn't trying to enforce a style. And so she thought that was a very good thing, and it allowed her to develop her own style. Wow. One of the other advantages of studying with him is that uh, it allowed her to break away from realism and strictly representational kinds of art. You have to think, well, what experiences with art would she have had? And it's pretty much, in, you know, the, the black high school didn't have an art program the yeah. way the, the white school did. So it's pretty much what she found in textbooks, you know, maybe art books in the library, which is primarily American and European realism and impressionism. And also, too, as far as uh, where black culture was at and what uh, the expectations were, it was very different from, say, the black power movement of the 1960s, Be Black, Be Proud. Instead, it's like we can do white things just as well yes. as whites can. Yes. We can we can paint European pictures, we can dance ballet, all these kinds of things. So she was pretty much raised with those kind of values. And that's the kind of artwork she began doing. So with Hale Woodruff, she began to uh, warm up towards abstraction and expressionism. Interestingly, her representational work remains rather traditional, rather conventional. Whereas with the abstraction, she could begin to move in other areas, get less conventional. And so this watercolor that I found is, is an abstract expressionist. It's a jazz quintet. 
And uh, she and her husband would go to clubs and they would go to concerts. They would, they would go to opera. They would go to classical music. They'd go to ballet. So this was a representation of that. And I've right. seen it, and I'm going to post pictures for you guys, um, but it is very abstract. Right. But she would also paint pictures uh, of family life. Uh, her family used to go out to a place called Denny's Spring, and there was a little little pond there, and it was a good place for picnics and whatnot. Then in the 1950s, and I think also under Hale Woodruff's influence, uh, she would paint, well, I guess at the time they were called race pictures, that is, picture, pictures of black life, which uh, Hale Woodruff had pioneered what was called the Atlanta School, sometimes called the Outhouse School, where he encouraged his students to just go out and paint the life you see, get get out of the city, go into the rural communities. And so these were very hopeful pictures one very typical kind of a Jules Simon picture. At the bottom, you will find row houses, you know, kind of a rundown, poor, poverty areas, yet the people are going about their daily life. Then above that, you see the, the skyscrapers, the beautiful sparkling uh, buildings uh, above that representing white culture and then uh, dissipating in, into the sky. In one picture. In one I picture. Okay. So they were layered in these ways. And so that, again, representing the hopes and aspirations uh, of the race. She did a, a number of those. Uh, City Slums uh, is one example. Uh, she painted that uh, in 1952, the same year that Hale Woodruff painted uh, The History of the Negro at Atlanta University, The Mural. She enters it in the Southeastern Annual Art Show, which is run by the Atlanta Art Association, which is completely white, yes. completely segregated, <laughs> enters this picture in, and it gets accepted. And then she gets sent an invitation to the opening. Where is the opening? The, it was at the at high. At the high, okay. This was in 1952. Now, we have a couple of different accounts of this. It's actually mentioned in the Atlanta Journal and Constitution, which said a painting entitled City Slums was exhibited by Mrs. Jules Simon in the Southeastern Annual Art Exhibit held last week at the High Museum of Art. Now, it doesn't mention her race. It also appears in the Atlanta Daily World, in which case uh, it comes out as the uh, wa watercolor painting being accepted by the High Museum of Art. Mrs. Simon attended the opening tea, which launched the 7th Annual Southeastern Exhibition of Artists uh, of eight southeastern states, at it which her painting was on display. She was given quite an ovation by the group for her achievements. Then, in a, a 1976 interview, Jewel Simon herself had this to say about it. I think it was because they didn't know I was Negro. My husband and I got an invitation to come to the opening. When we went to the opening, we were surrounded and not allowed to go where the members were, and everybody was asking what we was doing there. And I said, well, I had a painting in the show. I had to go and show them myself. She did say elsewhere that, yeah, in, in the beginning, she couldn't even get into the High Museum to look at the art there. So it took her having a picture in there for her to even get in at all. Now, let's contrast that with another 
annual art event in Atlanta. So we've got Atlanta University's annual show for blacks, the Southeastern show for whites, Mm -hmm. but then there is the Atlanta Arts Festival. This began in 1954. The first one was in the courtyard of Harry Norman's house in Buckhead. The next year, they moved to Piedmont Park. Now, this group was actually inspired by Brown versus Board of Education. So for their second show, they wanted it to be integrated, and they moved it to Piedmont Park. Now, you have to understand that blacks were not allowed in Piedmont Park, (laughs) except for this one time of the year. Do we know what she exhibited there? Yeah, got some pictures of her, probably from 1956 or so. Did she do every year after that, or was it just like a one-time thing? She did every year. Yeah, Yeah, it probably straight up into the 1980s. Uh, Later in the uh, 70s and 80s, they had pavilions for invited exhibits. Okay. So she was in some of those as well. At this point, did she still have one child, or did they have more? They had a second child in 1947, Margaret Jewell. Okay. And uh, she becomes a a society matron, what's sometimes referred to as the club ladies. Yeah. Was a member of uh, First Congregation. And uh, so they had a social club. That's what it was called, the social club. (laughs) And she was part of that. And she would sometimes give talks. She said she had to keep the talks kind of short because the elderly ladies would fall asleep. (laughs) Also, uh, she gave uh, uh, the links the uh, so the uh, women's uh, social club, very uh, very prestigious oh, one. Oh, it was called the Lynx. Yeah, Coretta Scott may have been a, a member of, and uh, Edward was a member of the Twenty Seven Club. I don't know where the number Twenty Seven comes from, but there's only Twenty Seven members. They meet on the Twenty Seventh of each month okay. at eight Twenty Seven p.m. Mm-hmm. So he was high standing, I think, guess is Yes, uh, because a 27 club, they're going to club dances with John Wesley Dobbs. Oh. And, you know, I mean, all it's a who's who of Black Atlanta elite. Uh, her life is filled with club activities and uh, bridge parties. Very much involved uh, in her children's school life. She becomes president of of Carter School PTA. She and Edward always traveled a lot, uh, and especially to travel north and travel northeast, because they can go to museums, they can go see theater shows and music, and not have to worry like they do in the South. She becomes involved in 1959 with the National Conference of Artists, which was begun by a black artist and educator, Margaret Burroughs, who was in Chicago. But they met at Atlanta University at the annual art show. And the idea was that black artists didn't really have any resources for networking or finding out what each other was up to or planning activities, uh, especially those in the South who didn't have access to any uh, other art organizations. So that they found this at Atlanta University in 1959. So uh, Jewel Simon's one of the founding members. She was the uh, first treasurer of the organization and did that for 15, 20 years. They had annual conferences in different cities. 
and uh, she would sometimes exhibit art. And so that's also a way of getting more of an, a national recognition because she's primarily an Atlanta artist. Going back to the High Museum, her house is filling up with art. <laughs> and in fact, from about the mid-50s until the 90s, anybody who goes to her house says it's like a museum. Oh. It's just stuffed with art everywhere. So she writes to Reginald Poland, who's the director of the High Museum, and says, well, you've got this by browse gallery where you could rent a painting, which was a thing. Uh, 57 is when okay. she writes to him and says, you know, I'd, I'd like to be able to, to get my art in there. And he's very polite, that, that good old southern smile, mile <laughs> wide and an inch deep. And he says, well, I'm all for that. But in order to be associated with that gallery, you have to be associated with the art school attached to the High Museum because it's run by the school's alumni. Now, of course, the school is white and it's not integrated. They don't plan to integrate. So she starts a campaign every year applying for admission to the school. Uh, at that time, it was the Atlanta Art Institute. Uh, then it changed its name to the Atlanta School of Art and finally the Atlanta College of Art. And eventually it merged with SCAD. Now, you've covered the High Museum, and you talked about the tragedy at Orly in, in Paris. Yes. So kind of like the old guard. And uh, already at the time, they had commissioned studies. They knew they needed to change, that okay. they were out of step, they were out of date. And also there's a lot more pressure to integrate. 1961, UGA integrates, there's yeah. riots, but everywhere there's the sense that, yes, it's inevitable. it's inevitable, you've got to do it. I've had a very hard time trying to find information about this, and Jewel herself has nothing extant about this. Really? I found an article from 1963 in which there was a real attempt at quiet integration. So the Urban League in Atlanta is actually facilitating different institutions and blacks who want to get in to quietly integrate. And that's what they did at the Atlanta School of Art. And what year do we know? 1963. Okay. Yeah. She and uh, another uh, a black student, T. Maurice Pennington, kind so of thing. So he and she were the first black students at the Atlanta School of Art. That's right, right. She's how old at this point? So she's 52 years old. Yeah. That's amazing. What's her major? Uh, well, she's working uh, for a BFA. She doesn't have to do the academics because she's already done those. So okay. she can just focus on art. And she graduates four and a half years later. And it's interesting because the students who remember her said that, yeah, she was much older, so generationally she just didn't fit in. Because a lot of these were white students from upper middle class family who wanted the bohemian experience. <laughs> yeah, whereas she was much more serious. In 1967, June, she becomes the first African American to graduate from the school. Pennington dropped out, but he came back later. And then after that, uh, black students became a regular part uh, a student body there. But she was the first, so she broke the color line there. So she 
graduates and then I'm seeing here does she do more I mean does this degree get her more shows or more access there is a quantitative and qualitative change uh, in her art and in uh, her shows she has a large solo show at the Jewish Community Center in Peachtree wow. in 1968. I should mention James Adair, who is a black artist, opened the first black-owned art gallery on Peachtree Street in 1963, and Jules Simon uh, was one of the first to have a solo show there. Uh, and she goes on to have a number of solo shows, summer at Clark College, one uh, big one in 1980 at Rich's Department Store. And she had a number of other solo shows. Some of them were sponsored by Atlanta Life uh, and some by Atlanta University. Some of them traveled around in Savannah and various other cities. So she had uh, solo shows. Yeah. And she began to get her art in more shows around the country. There was an important show in 1961 at Howard University. She had some work there. In 1966, uh, in California. Uh, in 1966, again, through Margaret Burroughs, some of her prints was in an international exhibition co-sponsored uh, by the Soviet Union. Oh, wow. Some of her work in New Zealand, uh, even in Japan. So she's beginning to get something of, of a national and a bit of an international reputation. What is this Atlanta Life Insurance art show? Atlanta University annuals ended in 1970, so there really wasn't anything else. Now, Atlanta University had put together a tremendous collection of art because they would do purchase prizes. Oh. You win first or second place, you win money, but they win the art. They're oh, going to keep the art. Oh, okay. And then in 1980, Atlanta Life decides that they're going to revive the annual show with the purchase prizes. So Atlanta Life, did they amass a collection? of? Yes, and they have it. They have it. Where? Nobody knows. Well, no. somebody knows, but Ooh. it's not published. Really? And nobody has access to no. it. No. So it's not in their office building downtown? No, no. It's probably all boxed up in a warehouse somewhere. Hundreds have, of pieces of prize-winning black art. Have you talked to anybody? Like, Oh, yeah. The, in, just in certain circles, this is a, a bit of a scandal uh, that this work is not available. If Atlanta Life had, it looks like they had 20 or 10 years at least of art shows. Right, they do. So, so she had nothing to do with the starting of this show. She just exhibited there? No, she she was part of the organizing committee. Okay. She, she was one of the ones to get this underway, and she was on the board of officers. Okay, I could see that. I mean, is her husband still working there at this point? He retired and then was elected chairman of the board. Oh, wow. And he dies in 1984. And uh, after that, Joel slows down. One of the things is that she never learned to drive. And really? so her, in Atlanta. In Atlanta, <laughs> <That's> yes. <amazing. laughs> Which may have extended her lifespan. I but uh, the pro so her husband would drive the oh. art. In fact, in some places they thought he was the artist. Aww. So this really limited how she could. It did. It did. Plus, just she lost the energy to do it. 
her output slows and finally stops. She takes to writing poetry. Back when she was still a school teacher in Houston, 1935, she wrote a letter to James Weldon Johnson. Oh, I love it! Which was a pretty pretentious thing to do. Yes. She includes her poetry and asked him, basically, what do you think? Can you help me get these published? <laughs> he, he respond? He responded. Oh, what? And he said, I wish I could say there were something exceptional in these verses, but it would do you no service to say so. But all her life, she wrote poetry. She would occasionally publish it in the Atlanta uh, Daily World. So she begins writing poetry. She dusts off her own old poetry, and po finally publishes that book of poetry in 1990. 1990! <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm bad with math here. So at this point, she's close to 80. Right. Does she self-publish it? I think it was with the help of friends. Okay. So kind of self-published. Wow. Yeah. It says she dies in 1996. Did she, was she ill? What? Of old age, okay. basically. That, yeah. I, I don't know the actual cause of death, but she, she died at home. Okay. She had good health until she didn't, and then she declined. Are, are both children living locally? Yes. Okay, and no. you met them. So, I mean, how... Yes. But you... I mean, I, I guess if someone came up to me and was like, I'm researching your mother, you know, who died 50, 20 well, years ago. Well, I recall ago. <laughs> when, I, when I met Edward Jr., one of the first things I said to him is, this will sound strange coming from someone you've just met, but you sure do look a lot like your father. He's like, excuse me, 911. Uh, and it's, it's a very strange sort of thing that I'm you know, regaling the granddaughters with stories about uh, their grandmother and great-grandfather that they had never heard. To them, you know, she was just Gaga. That yeah. was the nickname. She was warm and wonderful. Uh, she could be strict. She was always very proper. But she was, yeah, she was their grandmother. I love this. So you have so much information. I've seen some of it. What is the goal? I'm working on a book, yes. Okay. Uh, and uh, I've been in touch with a number of people. I should mention Dr. Marita Poole, Dr. Shania Harris, uh, Dr. Amalia Maki. So there's a, a team of, of some strong black women, which I need yes. because... Uh, <laughs> Because you're not one of those. <laughs> Every time I sit down to work on this, I tell myself I am a white male who's not even an artist writing about a black woman artist. <laughs> I really must have some nerve. I think sometimes it finds you. Like, I love how you found her one piece of art and now here you are yeah. a year and a half later with all this information. Yeah, so the, the book will happen. And also talking to the museum directors, so we, we've talked about an exhibition. The pandemic's kind of put uh, everything uh, on hold, uh, so we, we hope we can still pull that off. That would be amazing. I, I, I am so thankful that you came to do this because I, I mean, I've been fascinated with Jewel Simon ever since you told me about her. And I feel like as more people can understand her story and know her story, right? I mean, yes. And my ulterior motive <laughs> is if there's anybody out there who has some Jewel Simon art or is, knows where some is, Please contact me. I'm trying to catalog all the art I can. 
I have a record of about over 500 pieces, but I know there's a lot more out there. Ooh, and yeah, I want to find it. House full of art. So, the, okay, I will put, I'm going to put Mark's um, information in the show notes as well. But you know, mine, mine is in there. Just if you know of any Jewel Simon pieces or someone that has it, reach out and he can, he can get it all cataloged. He's not going to try to steal it. He just wants to catalog it. I just want to catalog <laughs> it, right? I just want to look. So there you have it, the story of Jewel Simon. Like we said, I have Mark's email in the show notes so you guys can contact him. You can also contact me. If you know of any of Simon's work that exists out in the world, he'd love to catalog it. I've posted a photo of Jewel and the initial piece that Mark purchased on social media, and I'll share more as the week goes on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to leave a rating or a review. Have a wonderful holiday. Have a happy new year, and have a great weekend. I'll be back on January 8th.